people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Hello and welcome to the Doin' Time Show. This is 3CR Community Radio, 855am on the dial, streaming live on www.3cr.org.au. And this is Marissa and Peter's here too, pushing buttons. Hi. And we're going to be doing two interviews today. The first one is going to be with Ian um, from Sydney and he's from the Refugee Action Coalition. And we're going to be speaking about legislation clearly intended for doctors to be to bring asylum seekers and refugees to the mainland. We're going to discuss the very interesting and controversial medical bill um, that was basically ruined by the Liberal government. And now the Liberal government is reopening Christmas Island and flying six, six people up to 68, 70 kilometres there from, from Nauru before having to send them on to mainland Australia at enormous expense. And it shows that the governor's, government's content for human need. It's just disgusting. So there was actually a rally that happened at the State Library and there were a number of speakers. And this particular um, rally or snap action rather was organised by the Refugee Action Collective. And we're going to be speaking with Ian about that and looking a bit around the background of asylum seekers and refugees. After that, we're going to be speaking with Brett Collins from Justice Action. And we'll speak to Brett about a number of issues. Hopefully, he'll be able to speak about some of the work that Justice Action has been doing um, in regards to um, voting rights for prisoners. But the first and foremost, we will speak to Brett because he was actually present at the David, or one of the days of the David Gunguy inquest. An inquest has reopened into the death of David Gunguy JR, a 26-year-old Indigenous Dunguti man who basically died in custody. There was graphic footage. Um, it was an eight-minute ordeal which happened at the inquest a couple of years ago, which began with officers from an immediate action team um, at Sydney's Long Bay Jail, rushing Dungai's cell and restraining him face down on the bed. He was transferred to another cell where he was restrained again, injected with a powerful sedative, midazolam, and a few minutes later stopped breathing. And it was all over a packet of biscuits. So, yeah, we interviewed Latona, um, David's mother, uh, two weeks ago on the 4th of February, and we spoke with her about David's death. She is also attending the inquest, so we'll speak to Brett Collins from Justice Action, where he will give an eyewitness account of the inquest. So I believe Peter has got some, some music for us. Oh, yeah, this is uh, River of Tears, Kev Comedy. And you're back with the Doing Time show, and what a, a very appropriate song by Kev Carmody, River of Tears, really emphasising the ongoing genocide in this country. And we're actually speaking now with Ian from the Refugee Coalition. Hello, Ian. It's lovely to have you on the program. Yeah, hi, Marissa. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, was that, was that correct, that name, that title? Uh, yeah, yeah, Refugee Action Coalition. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in Sydney. Yeah, affiliated with the Refugee yes. Action Collective in Melbourne. Absolutely. Thank you, Ian. Yep. 
for clarifying that. Now, I was just reading on air um, an action alert and there, and there was some – the Refugee Action Collective actually had a snap action on Saturday and I'll just quickly quote from the media release before we launch into our interview. Medivac yep. means um, Xmas is detention – what? Sorry, I've <laughs> <laughs> I had a mental block there. <laughs> That's all right. What's Medivac mean? Uh, Medivac is a term for medical evacuation. It's a shortening that to refer, referring to the medical evacuation from people from you know Nauru and and Manus. So it happens in two ways. Sometimes it's an emergency and there's actually a like a care flight, an actual Medivac flight. Um, but the uh, the bill uh, that's uh, been passed now refers to medical evacuation. So it's become a short version to talk about. Medivacs from medical transfers from Nauru and Manus. Thank you so much. I thought that was a a typo on my Braille document. Refugee (laughs) supporters rallied in central Melbourne on Saturday, 2nd of March, to demand that the federal government bring Medivac patients from Manus and Nauru to mainland Australia for treatment. Refugee Action Collective spokesperson Chris Breen said that the Morrison government is attempting to subvert the recent Medivac legislation by reopening the detention centre on Christmas Island and declaring that refugees and asylum seekers needing treatment would be taken there first. Can you tell us um, a little bit of background about this, Ian, and tell us a bit about the bill and why Christmas Island has been opened? I just don't get it. <laughs> no, well, yeah, we don't get it either, really, Marissa. Um, the Man Act bill is, uh, came about as uh, amendments to part of the Migration Act bill, and what it referred to was the possibility of recommendations. Well, ultimately, that's what it's been passed now, so that on the recommendations of two treating doctors, uh, people who require treatment or assessment, uh, medical assessment in Australia, uh, can be transferred on the basis of those two doctors' recommendations from Nauru and from Manus Island. That's That's been a short version of what it means. There's also provision for uh, family members who have been separated. So if someone has been, you know, medical evacuated, brought already from Nauru or Manus uh, to Australia, and if they've got direct family that remain on Manus or Nauru, then they can also, under this bill, be transferred, you know, to Australia to be with the, uh, you know, the family. So it's a family reunion union aspect to the you know to the bill um but it, it was based enormous resistance uh, from the coalition uh, people might remember that they um you know, I'm not sure what the word is a word for it. when people effectively, uh, you know, I can't think of it. When they jammed they just, you know, like, so it's Koi Bernardi who just kept talking and talking and using up the time last year to prevent the, the bill being going back to the House of Representatives. It's, um, you know, it was supported by Labor, the Greens, and all the independents, Bob, you know, Bob Catter. So it's the first bill for 90 years um, to actually get up against the, against the sitting government. So it was carried 75 to 74 in the House of Reps and it was a major defeat for the Morrison government. Now they're trying to resist it in every way possible and so Morrison's first response to the carrying of legislation was to say everyone who is transferred from Nauru and Manus Island for medical treatment is now going to be placed you know, in Christmas Island and even before the legislation was um, got royal assent became law, uh, you know, Morrison had made a big song and dance about you know, reopening Christmas Island. They've now put out a notice, effectively intimidating people who are on 
Madison Nauru saying if you are medically transferred, uh, we will detain you. Uh, and um, now the news today is that he's going to make a trip to Christmas Island to do a little bit more, you know, grandstanding. Uh, you know, saying that that's what they're going to do, and they are attempting to subvert the the substance of the of the bill. Obviously, people who are sick do need treatment, do need assessment. <laughs> I'm not going to get that on you know on Christmas Island. Uh, Morrison is saying he will send them there simply because he can and uh, hopefully that, you know, he hopes to be seen as a, you know, another, you know, anti-refugee strongman. Yeah, well, it's, uh, that's, I'm so happy that you were able to talk about that background. Now, Ian, with your phone, sorry, there's, you sound, yep. you sound great, you sound really clear, but there is a little bit of static there. Are you able to just, I don't know. Is that okay? I'll try and move that's, somewhere. That's a little <laughs> bit better. A little bit better. Maybe I was yelling a bit closer to no, the No, no, no. You, you you're yeah, doing a fantastic can... job. You're coming across loud and clear. Um, it's just okay. a little bit, that, that's better. So, that, okay. So, Ian, with the bill, and you've explained it really well, with, with the bill, is it actually um, – has it been watered down, do you think, by Labor putting in the amendments? What do you think happened there? Uh, well, the, the amendments were un, unnecessary. That's that's uh, that's certainly true. Um, but I don't think it's been substantially watered down, um, and I think you can see that by you know the government's response. They've responded you know hysterically by you know reopening you know Christmas Island. Um, but the proof of the pudding is going to be in the eating. I think the the problem for the campaign is that. Um, they were they were just unnecessary concessions, and it seemed to indicate again, you know, kind of Labor's willingness to make concessions to the government's anti-refugee policy on the basis of, you know, security considerations or criminality considerations or all the kinds of things which the you know the government often raises around issues of refugees, uh, rather than seeing it, you know, as a refugee as a human rights issue. They want to put it in terms of national security and, you know, and border protection. Uh, so there were some unnecessary. Um, concessions that's you know that's true but um yeah i don't think it's watered it down you know too much more, more than we would like obviously it's a pretty crude attempt um by the liberal government to drum up a racist scare campaign isn't it in the run-up to the election in may and i'm wondering if if labor actually put in those amendments because of that scare campaign well obviously the, there's an there's certainly an element of that. They're, they're, you know, very worried that the, you know, that is how the government is going to respond to the fact that, um, you know, Labor has voted with the Greens and the independents to carry this legislation against the government. Like, it's the first time for many years that we've seen Labor willing to stand up to the coalition yeah. over, you know, refugee legislation, refugee policy in, in any way. Um, I think the more revealing thing, I think, is, is, the, is the government's response. Like, they simply cannot believe, one, that Labor has actually done it, has <laughs> stood up to them and uh, secondly that their scare campaign there's no sign that their scare campaign is actually you know working which I think it uh, helps explain their hysteria and uh, your disarray really um, they I think firmly believe like they did in the Victorian elections that you just had to talk about African gangs and you were going to guarantee you know a state government uh, win for the Liberals in Victoria and 
federally, you know, Morrison and Dutton just think you've got to talk about refugees and it's a sure winner, you know, for the coalition. Um, I think we've seen very clearly that it's not. Hopefully that is an encouragement to Labor uh, then to say that we, you know, we do not need and shouldn't, you know, keep making concessions in any way, you know, to the, the, the you know, the Liberals' arguments about, you know, about refugees and that it's possible for, you know, a human rights policy to actually get a hearing in the Australian uh, public, that it's not the electoral winner that the coalition has, uh, you know, relied on. And the, most of the media has also talked about, the, you know, the tamper effect. You know, the Australian was very quick to talk about, you know, Scott Morrison's, you know, tamper moment. Um, but <laughs> they, uh, the recent polls have indicated that um, it's no such thing and he's still a long, long way behind in the polls in spite of the scaremongering. Look, this this government is is so transparent. Anybody can see what's going on. <laughs> yeah, like, except them. Did you see insiders on Sunday? I didn't. No, no. They, but... they were talking about the the healthcare system, and um, they showed a couple of clips from the week, and, and the government, you know, the Liberal government keeps the Morrison government keeps saying that the healthcare system um, will be run down because of. Refugees haven't been flown to the mainland. Isn't that shocking? Like, I just couldn't believe it. No, no, I think that, and that's also like indicative of where they find themselves. You know, like they are really scraping the bottom of the barrel. They've always been prepared to do that. I mean, you know, Dutton's, you know, talk about the, you know, the South African farmers or the African gangs, or now talking about refugees taking the places of Australians that Australians won't forgive, you know, refugees if they're taking their their place. Um, they conveniently fact, you know, forget that that. This government, the Morrison government, has now transferred almost 900 people from Nauru and Manus Island. But apparently, you know, that, that people, the sick people who were coming from Nauru, you know, around Christmas time, they weren't taking anybody's place. That was that was just fine. It's fine to talk about, and they sometimes even amazingly brag uh, about getting the children off Nauru, the people, the kids who needed, you know, medical attention. Apparently, that's okay. But if they're adults who need medical attention, well, there's no sympathy, you know whatsoever and we're going to try and you know scapegoat and uh, denigrate you know those people um and it is it is despicable but um i think it's become very typical you know kind of response to you know scapegoat scapegoat minorities you know try and uh use the media as much as they can to um you know pitch you know refugee rights against the you know the rights of many people but i think most people understand that if government cuts if there are if there are kids in hospitals, if people can't get treatment, it's certainly not because of uh, refugees um, before or after the Medivac bill. And, you know, basically if it's the government that's running down the healthcare system because if Manus and Nauru were shut down, there'd be a lot of money saved and it could be put into the healthcare system. Yeah, look, the madness of the tumorous is if they'd never been sent there, then they wouldn't need some of the, the health care that they, they actually need. The, the government has made them sick. Uh, the government has robbed them of their, you know, their their mental health, has denied treatment for some, you know, for even issues like, you know, like you know, breast lumps, um, which, you know, could have been dealt with, you know, here in Australia. Perhaps it's a, you know, they could have been assessed, you know, and they wouldn't be, you know, sort of major health, you know, considerations. But by leaving people without treatment for, you know, 
over five years in some in some cases. Um, that's not what we've got anymore. We've got you know major health problems, um, and they they need to be treated. But of course, it's not at uh, it's not at anybody's um, expense at all. And uh, the doctors themselves have made that point. You know, there's plenty of capacity in the you know the public health system to absorb the uh, small numbers of people that actually do need you know that that treatment. That they uh, but it's right to make the point they need that treatment because has denied them uh, treatment for the last uh, you know, five plus years. So in reality, Ian, is it true to say then, so the bill can't happen now? So does that mean they're just gonna, if they reopen Christmas Island, they're just going to be transferred from one remote island to the other and they won't be able to go to Australia? Look, I, I, the, the, the bill is very clear that people have to be transferred from Nauru for medical treatment. Um, I think the government has tried to put Christmas Island in the, you know, this kind of the spoke in the, 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 the Medivac, Medivac wheel. Um, but it's also clear that if people are transferred and do not get them the, the medical treatment, the fact is that on Christmas Island they will be subject to Australian law and there certainly has it's already been made clear if they don't get treatment, or the government tries to delay that treatment, there will be legal action, uh, as there had to be uh, last year, uh, in the federal court to get orders uh, on the Australian government to provide legal treatment. In this case, it, it will be because it's not available on Christmas Island. So the government's opened itself as they think they're going to use Christmas Island now to warehouse people. They're mistaken. Now uh, they're mistaken because there will be an absolute, you know, massive outcry um, against trying to substitute Christmas Island for Nauru, you know, or Manus, and there will be an outcry because it will be um, a obvious attempt uh, to subvert the the need for medical treatment of the people who are on Manus uh, and Nauru, and there certainly will be the you know, legal action. So um, I think it's a fair bit of you know political grandstanding, you know, by Moss. Uh, we're going to reopen Christmas Island because we can. We're going to, you know, use Christmas Island as another little part of our, you know, electoral platform. Uh, you know, where where the you know the government that's uh, been taking the strong arm positions against uh, against refugees. But uh, as I said, the promising thing is that it's there's no indication at all that that response has has gained them, you know, any political support at all. And uh, just like the rally in you know, Victoria on Saturday, where everywhere around the country is now building for major refugee rallies on uh, April the 14th, Sunday, uh, Palm Sunday, uh, not very far away now, uh, where we're going to make it a you know as big rallies as big as we possibly can to say bring everyone from Manus and Nauru uh, to Australia. We're going to close all the detention centres. That means Manus, Nauru, and you know, Christmas Island now. Thank you so much, Ian. I'm in a concluding comment here, and it's it's probably going to – I, I want to apologise if um, I'm going to be offending any listeners here um, who are Catholics. But, y- you know, you, you hear John Howard and Tony Abbott going on about Mr. the priest Powell mm. and, you know, making out like he's such a mate of theirs and how Powell, you know, uh, basically – watering down the the victim statements um, of the pedophilia in the Catholic Church. Mm. And yet, you know, you you hear the the Morrison government saying, oh, yes, but there's going to be pedophiles coming to Australia. Yeah. Seriously. Uh, With much less evidence. (laughs) Sorry? With much less evidence uh, that there are pedophiles coming from the rural manners to Australia than the very clear evidence that the Royal Commission has produced that... uh, yeah, where, where they exist in the church and other places in Australia. 
I mean, seriously, the, I, I, I had to mention that. And I'm not here to attack. Everybody has a right and freedom of religion. I'm not here to attack that. I'm yes, just saying it's double standards and it's it's absolutely deplorable. Yeah, yeah, no, there's many people on that uh, list of character references for, um, you know, Cardinal Powell, are, uh, you know, are a list of people who have taken very, very strong, you know, anti-refugee positions. So it's uh, a lot of hypocrisy around at the moment. Ian, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Are there any concluding comments that you'd like to make before we end our interview? Um, I, I think I've made my call to support the rallies. Um, I think now we've seen, we've seen you know a very big breakthrough as far as the movement is concerned. The kids are now you know off Nauru. Um, I think there's momentum now to get everybody off Nauru. You know in Manus Island, we need to keep that momentum up. We need to support the rallies that are recalled, and we need to make you know Palm Sunday rallies across the country the biggest they've been. When is it again? 14th of April? 14th of April, yeah. Two o'clock it's outside um, uh, the State Library in Victoria, Swanson Street. Two o'clock, April 14th. Ian, thank you very much for that. Thanks a lot. Good on you. Thank you, Marissa. Bye-bye. Take bye. care. And that was Ian from the Refugee Action Coalition um, from Sydney. And he was speaking about asylum seekers and refugees and the medical crisis that they are facing. Just to also say to listeners that Christmas Island has only six hospital beds and locals already have to fly to the mainland for a range of operations and for childbirth. So go figure. It's approximately 4.22 and we're going to be speaking shortly with Brett Collins from Justice Action who's going to be reporting from the inquest that's been reopened for David Dungai Jr. Help 3CR support the rights of Indigenous Australians. They mean to save our culture and save our dreams, our footprints, dreams, our songline, and keep our culture going strong. Of course, a lot of the Aboriginals, having been stolen, were put into state care, and also others were... The recognition of what our people have been through in the last 200 years, the recognition of our culture in the last 40,000 years, and the recognition of where we are heading into the future. Welcome to uh, Survival Day, Invasion Day. 223 years ago, the white man landed on our shores. Subscribe to 3CR and help keep Indigenous voices on air. Call us on 94198377 or visit 3cr.org.au. And you're back with the Doing Time show and we're speaking now with Brett Collins from Justice Action and Peter's joining me in the studio as well. Hello Brett, welcome to the program. Yes, can I have a start? Good now, to hear you. you might, yeah, you might, it's lovely to hear I'm from you. I'm just my phone now, just one in. Yeah, Correct that's there. it. Oh, beautiful. Okay. You're a legend, Brett. Now... <laughs> Now, Brett, we were discussing um, over the phone. Now, you wanted today to talk about um, the topic of David Dungai Jr. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Uh, it's an absolutely tragic and amazing case. Uh, that's uh, of this Aboriginal, young Aboriginal man who um, was uh, died in custody in, in Long Bay and the inquest has uh, been running two weeks already and today it began again here in Sydney. Were you there at the inquest? Uh, yes, I was. I was uh, there. We had, and there would have been a team of um, I'd say probably twenty um, members of the family who'd come down as well, and there were a number of other people, including there was uh, a, um, there was the uh, SBS was there, and so was the um, National Indigenous um, uh, Television. So there was a lot of interest uh, in in the uh, in the inquest, and there were, there were actually thirteen lawyers. Uh, there, um, you know, defending, well, not all friends defending David, unfortunately, but they were there um, to defend their own interests. They were 
cut the services that they're in force with the Crown Solicitor there. Correct the services the, uh, were there, were they? Yeah, oh, there was, uh, there was, I had, I had 13 lawyers in total, so there was, it just gives you a sense of how much, how much um, interest there was. So this says inquest has reopened, hasn't it? That's right. No, well, so the, the earlier part of the of the inquest happened um, in in um, July, August last year, and it went for two weeks. Yes. So it was uh, you know, quite horrendous. So yeah, they had to, uh, he actually died. Um, uh, David died in in Long Bay in the in the prison hospital on, on, on December 29th in 2015. So it's actually it's taken uh, three years to come to the stage, um, but uh, the you know, the uh, 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 the the grossness of the behaviour of um, both prison guards and also uh, nurses has um, been really shown uh, very graphically by a closed circuit television recordings, a video recording where where um, you know David was told to stop eating a packet of biscuits, and um, because he was uh, he refused to to stop eating them, uh, they decided to do a cell extraction on him, and um, and so uh, and as a result of that. And injecting him with this uh, this um, medication, um, he died at the end of time. So there was basically people that didn't the the, the officers were not trained to well, deal with any of that. Yeah, look, it doesn't come down to training, to be honest about, about this matter. It comes down to just showing some some it comes some sympathy. Down to, um, um, you know, showing some just general humanity um, uh, to the man. Now he. He, you know, had six six guards who were holding him down uh, on his stomach. Disgusting. Uh, so in his stomach, and, and they had, and, and they then took his pants down and then injected him in the buttocks. And they had some, they had some nursing staff, four other guards. There were six guards holding him down. Four other guards were looking on, right? And while this was happening, he called out, and he called out 12 times. He called out 12 times. I can't, I can't breathe, right? And, and they then, they said, well, you can talk, you can breathe, right? And he lost consciousness. And then that's something that like they you know, realised that, that he actually had lost consciousness and he, was, he had no way of, of getting air back in his lungs. And then they, they waited several minutes before they began um, a CPR. And, um, and then he went into a cardiac, a cardiac arrest. It, was, um, uh, it took a, a, a long period before they understood that, um, uh, that he, was, he was in the process of dying. Um, and you know, people just didn't take responsibility. Not only do they not take responsibility, but we we were talking to his mother on the show a couple of a couple of weeks ago. We were talking to Latona, and what I meant by training was that Latona had mentioned to us, and indeed um, others who've been interviewed on this show about David mentioned that um, the officers and and indeed the medical staff were not were not equipped to put him in the right position so that he wouldn't die. Well, that's right. Well, that's all absolutely. And, and the other thing, probably even worse than that, is that is there was no reason at all for them to do a cell extraction. And one of the yeah. um, one of the uh, nurses today uh, was giving uh, evidence, and she said that she had been told by the doctor, and she had carried the information from the doctor that there was no reason for them to go and do a cell extraction; they could leave him alone. And she actually gave evidence today, and she said uh, that she'd spoken to a group of officers, and she identified two of them. Um, as so uh, with code names, as code name Officer E and Officer F, um, who who, um, who she spoke with directly, who were in that group, and who then proceeded after that uh, to be involved in the cell extraction and um, and then uh, uh, held him down and uh, forced the air out of him and killed him. Right. But so it's what we had today was evidence to say um, that the 
a doctor had had passed the information to the nurse. There was no urgency at all. They could have left him where he was, but instead they moved in on him and um, and and killed him. It's it's terrible, um, and there really is a failure of duty of care. Really, Latona yeah, was distraught right. when when she was speaking to us. Well, look, I think what came out of it, and um, and you know what's come out of it frequently is, and and looking at the graphic, um, the actual video, the video of what actually happened, and you know these things are actually now we've, we've deliberately made a, a link across to the videos on our website, so people who have access to the website can can actually see this. Um, uh, the Guardian ran ran a, a series of of um, podcasts and uh, with the videos in there. And so, um, and so, uh, what you see is uh, like really gross behaviour. People just not caring. And so, um, and when you've got six guards around a single man, like pressing on his chest, and you've got another four guards outside looking on, you've got overwhelming force there. Not to to show him compassion is such a bad thing. Absolutely. And and where has this inquest actually taken place? Is this the first day, Brett? Well, look, the first part of the first two weeks of the inquest happened in the centre of the city, in, in the, the Downing Centre. But today it's taken out to, to Lipcombe, where there's a new new centre out there, and there would have been, I'd say, 70 people, 70 people who were, who were listening to the evidence. As I say, there were 13 lawyers. I mean, a lot of lawyers are there for, um, not the, for the interests of David Dungay. They're there for the, um, to defend the prison officers, like their guards involved, mm. and also corrective services and justice health. And, and the nurses, I separately have their own, have their own, um, barrister. So they have a lot of people who are focusing on the, on the, on the death and custody of David Dungay. But I, I, from the questions that are being asked, it's clear that there's, uh, there will be some very uh, significant changes as a result of what happened to David. What do you mean by significant changes from, in your view? Well, look, one of the most important things was, was that um, when uh, the uh, nurse and the, and the uh, prison officers were asked, um, is there any protocol for to have somebody in there, um, say um, somebody who is a friend of David who could talk to him, an Aboriginal liaison officer, a, a, um, another um, a peer mentor from inside the prison. So and we're talking now about other prisoners who are respected um, by others who are delegated to the task, trained um, to, to assist um, um, with other prisoners. And the question was, had, had they been asked to intervene? Because, you know, he's not as though he can't talk. He's, David Dungay was a lucid, handsome, smart, young Aboriginal man, right? And he, he was quite capable of explaining, you know, why he was resisting um, giving back the, the biscuits. And he could have been talked to just like any other human being. Exactly. And so what, what was required was whether he needed to have a friend there, someone to say, that back off, leave him alone. What's wrong with you? Why shouldn't he eat the biscuit? And that, that conversation needed to happen. But because he was by himself... Nobody needed to talk to him. They just thought they could they could run in on him and 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 impose their will, regardless of what um, what he wanted to do. First thing, and regardless of what the medical uh, uh, support team, including the doctor, uh, felt was important, they just wanted to say that we told you something to do something, and you'll just do it. And here it is. And if you uh, act like an, a a a, a, a uppity um, Aboriginal boy, we'll show you his boss. And that's exactly what they did. And this is the first day, like not the first oh, well, day, is, but this is like they were they had the inquest last last year. But this is the continuation well, right, right. of it. Look, this is this is the first day they resumed here. Resumed, yeah. Um, projected for another five days this week. 
and there's uh, the buses are there. We're now um, looking at now what um, what are the recommendations that should come out of the out of the inquest. So we're trying to work through what we would hope um, uh, the uh, the coroner would say. And the number of things, obviously, and some of them should be should have had access to uh, some uh, some um, uh, external support wherever that was. He needed to have some friends. I needed the family to be there. The family could easily have been there um, from a, a phone to his mother or to other members of the family. You could have then persuaded him to take a different approach than he had, and could have persuaded the guards to have had a different um, response to him than they had. So to move in the way they did with urgency, as though it was a crisis matter, just was not true. It needed to be handled delicately and with and with respect to him, and that clearly didn't happen. And as a result, he was he, he was killed. Another Aboriginal death in custody. Absolutely, and then and what we're hoping this time is that is that all the lessons of the the um, a Royal Commission to Aboriginal deaths in custody they will come come out properly. And so we're doing an analysis now about you now what. What were the recommendations that should have made the difference, and what what um, has happened to those uh, recommendations, and what has the New South Wales government done um, to ensure that um, they have been carried into action? And who was presiding over the inquest today, Brett? Uh, sorry, who was what again? Who was 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 anyone who was actually in charge of the inquest? Uh, look, we had we had a team of three there, um, so uh, four actually who are um, who are, are reporting on it. So they've actually got notes, and um, at the end of the uh, hearing, which it would have ended by now, um, uh, they um, they're all got to pay their notes. It'll go to um, to a scribe, and who will then um, uh, uh, put together a report of today's events, and then and then for the next uh, uh, well, in fact, over this whole week, uh, we'll have someone there who'll be um, writing a report and sharing that report um, out on social media. So everyone is will be aware of that, what's, what has been happening. Yes. Well, it's not lovely, but it's good that they're sharing it. So, so Brett, um, what was your... I mean, you saw the evidence. They showed the video footage, did they? Yes, they today? did. Um, no, no, we didn't see the video today. It was shown uh, on the previous uh, previous um, two weeks of hearings. Yeah. And, they are, and the video, um, the, that video footage is available um, if you come up on the Justice Action website... Um, there's a link there if you go um, to the David Dungay. Um, it says the death of David Dungay Jr. Um, uh, up on our website, you'll find the links across to um, to um, all the um, the videos. So there's a very significant uh, series of, of uh, uh, links that come in through the Guardian. Actually, he's been watching very closely um, uh, what has happened to um, to David. Indeed, and and this particular footage is is very graphic, and it's an eight Absolutely. minute ordeal which led to David Dungay's death. Brett, thank you so much for reporting on on the inquest. We we have been the Doing Time Show always looks for people that can report live from an inquest um, into a death in custody, and in fact, um, it's it's terribly important. Just before you go, though, can you just give us a little bit of an update about what what Justice Action Action is doing? Yes, Mr. Well, look, we've we've have a team today, probably a team of I think twenty two, twenty three people here have been running hard on a number of things. Uh, one of the things we're doing, um, apart from working on the uh, on the inquest, is um, we're preparing for the uh, both federal and the New South Wales state election. So uh, the uh, federal election is only a matter of a few weeks away. So we're putting together a a special edition of the of the newspaper, Just Us. 
and to be going out to every person and every prison around Australia, and also into all the locked hospitals, the psychiatric hospitals as well. Um, the, the, every um, major political party has prepared um, statements. So it's right from the uh, from the Labor and Liberal Greens right across the Socialist Alliance, and I think even even uh, the um, uh, Pauline Hanson party has got a statement of some sort in there. So it's intended that um, that uh, the uh, everybody should have a chance to see what um, uh, the parties have to say um, to prisons, to people in, in prison and hospitals, and we, our focus particularly is on the education issue because that's a, a really bit of a, a ladder up for people who are, you know, who have too much time on their on their hands and no chance to use it. So that's um, that's what the newspaper is about. And the other thing we're doing is, is we are also ensuring that the right to to be enrolled actually means something. So we actually have been out to every uh, state and territory um, and chasing um, the electoral commissions and the federal electoral commission and also all the uh, commissioners. So the commissioners in charge of prisons and by now we would expect that there'd be posters up in the jails about um, how do you go about enrolling the vote. Um, we were told that's happening now. So if it's not happening mm. in any of the people in prison uh, haven't seen their posters, now's the time to complain. Uh, where are our posters about, about enrolling to vote? How do we go about doing so? So prisoners are now allowed to enrol to vote? Absolutely. In fact, in fact, they, they they are entitled to, and there's an obligation on the prison authorities and the and the hospital authorities to ensure that they can. Just so, in you know, New South Wales, they write, they write to the electoral commission. They can get a postal vote, and they're entitled to then the same rights as does does anybody else in the general community. So it means they have, if you, for example, on um, uh, on remand. Total rights, everything, um, all rights. And if you're serving less than three years, that's the difference, less than three years or less, then you can vote too. So it means most of the people inside prisons um, can vote and everyone inside the hospitals can vote. And it's a nice chance to be engaged in the process. They try to they try to exclude um, our community. Well, here we are included by law and it forces uh, all the authorities who are, um, who are locking people up um, to, uh, to uh, respect that right. So we encourage everyone to, to roll the vote and have their say and, and be engaged and, uh, and be heard. This is in the whole of Australia, Brett? It is, right over Australia. So we've actually all eight jurisdictions, we've made contact with every one of them, and we've had from all the prisons commissions, they all agree that they are doing it at the moment. They say they are, but are they? That's the question. So definitely, you know, the audience, um, you know, uh, they know on the ground what's actually really happening. So if, if they find the answer, Posters up about the right to vote and enrolling to vote. If there's no information there, they should ask, how do we enrol to vote? Right? Come on, you have an obligation to ensure we know how to enrol to vote. That's the question they should be asking. I'm just really glad that we've been able, been able that 3CR Do and Time show has been able to shine a spotlight on that. And I believe you did an interview with Peter about this some weeks ago now, but it's always good to get, keep this issue alive, Brett. Now, just before... Wonderful. I know I'm kind of keeping you here a bit longer, but there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> Um, just, just getting back to David Dungay, what, what is um, Justice Action's position, if you like, and what, what's the work that Justice Action is doing in, in regards to this particular death in custody? Well, look, the most important thing is we're actually staying close and making sure that all the history of people who have died in similar situations to David, that that history comes in. So it's no, it's no good for this to be looked at in isolation and act as though this is the first first Aboriginal death in custody. It is not. There have been, there was a Royal Commission about this. There's been a continual uh, uh, series of deaths in custody where individuals have been isolated inside cells and been brutalised by the guards and by Justice Health 
or they've actually even, even taken their own lives. So all those situations are ones which um, have lessons um, to be to be um, uh, that must be accepted by the by the guards and by the authorities. Now they have been ignored; they've been treated with with contempt. And so the David Dungay case highlights how things must change and how people inside prison must have a right of hope, a right of hope, right of a, a, from a right of respect, and that the health department, right, so the health department, whether it's the nurses, whether it's the doctors, that they have a special obligation to make sure that, um, that the life and safety of the people inside prison is protected. Indeed, and, and it... it it really is appalling, as you said before, that the recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody have not been upheld. Well, that's right. And that, in fact, that analysis we're doing right now, and we'll see exactly what is the call, how many have been accepted, what difference would it have made um, to um, the, the way that they treated David and Gay. Would he be alive today um, if the New South Wales government had, had properly implemented those recommendations? And indeed, according to Guardian Australia investigation, it finds that 56% um, were on remand and died. Um, just generally speaking, with the deaths in custody statistics, while fleeing police or, or, or during arrest, or no, were in protective right. custody. Well, that's right. I mean, there's a whole level there of disrespect to to people in that situation. Really, um, you know, if you got you have um, a, a police force uh, armed uh, and and uh, uh, and excited young, um, mostly men, uh, young men and women with a, with a gun, um, the temptation is to use it, and that's what's been happening. Uh, there's been gross violence by the uh, officers of the state who are intended there um, to protect the community and protect um, everyone's lives. And so they shouldn't feel that they have a moral high ground um, to take out the gun and fire or to, um, or to uh, kill people um, who are vulnerably in a cell. So they're the sort of things that uh, needs really careful monitoring. Uh, you know, that when you arm uh, um, uh, uh, certain people um, in the community and uh, give them a badge and call them police, it doesn't mean they have a, a, a permission to do whatever they want and and to um, and to force their will and take lives of other people. And that's what is actually happening. And it's um, everyone's duty to make sure it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it's so bad, Brett. I mean, you know, with, with I'm just having a look at this article from The Guardian. Most of the Indigenous people who had not been yet charged were suspected of non indictable offences, looking at public intoxication and evading police. police. Yep, yes, you know? absolutely. Absolutely. No, no the, the imbalance of power is, is clearly expressed in, in the way the Aboriginal people are being treated. And of course, you know, if you look at the, at the statistics of you know, who's in the juvenile justice detainees, who are the juvenile justice detainees? You've got a, an, an amazing percentage of, of um, people across Australia who are um, Aboriginal youths are currently in, inside um, custody. And that suggests that uh, in the future when they have even a higher identity of Aboriginal imprisonment and, of course, death in custody. Yeah, and before we conclude, also just to say to listeners that the, one of the Aboriginal deaths in custody recently, we need to stand in solidarity also with the family of Tanya Day, and she's um, in Victoria. Tanya Day's, uh, Day died in, in police custody because they arrested, apprehended her while she was um, allegedly drunk on a, on a train, you know, wow. and indeed... Um, asleep. Yeah, she was asleep and she, she died. 
um, in suspicious circumstances. And in her daughters, Belinda Stevens and April Watson, will be on the speaker's platform at the International Women's Day rally this year in, in Victoria. Okay. okay, very important. And that's, uh, look, obviously this is a, a national problem, and an international problem, actually. It's a, it has to be fought at all levels. And, yeah. um, and so it's, it's, uh, it's great that we're getting the focus um, uh, through inquests such as David Dungay's and, 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 of course, high-level deaths such as the one you mentioned. Brett, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Can you just tell us the um, Justice Action website, please? Yes, absolutely. Well, um, so Justice Action's website is if you go www.justiceaction.org.au. So www.justiceaction.org.au and you come through to us and um, we're happy to, if your questions and things come off there and and if we can um, contribute to the situation, we certainly will. Thank you very much, Brett. As as always, it's been great talking with you and and we'll have you back for your regular update in, in a month or two. Lovely. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you so you much. And you just heard an interview with Brett Collins from Justice Action. Um, you just heard, heard an interview with with Brett Collins from Justice Action, and he was speaking to us about um, the inquest of David Dungai. He was reporting um, as as a direct because because he was there live. And we spoke as well about other deaths in custody as well. It's approximately 4.51.